This time on Audibly Speaking, narrating Sherlock Holmes. Audio narration is a wonderful way for people to have access to stories and novels that they otherwise might not have. And it's also a wonderful way for me to learn how to audio narrate. It's just a hobby, but I want to be as good as I can. And since I have this podcast, it's a way for me to distribute it around the world for free. Now, how do I go about this? Uh, Did I study at length the ins and outs of audio narration? No, I didn't do that at all. I did watch some YouTube videos by some professional narrators, but there's nothing like practice. Practice, they say, makes perfect. Well, it's not going to make perfect with audio narration because this is not my full-time gig, but it is going to be at least good enough, especially when you consider the price. So I think the other thing I want to talk about in this uh, podcast episode is the, the way in which I try to deal with the issue of characters in the story. There are a number of characters in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Obviously, Holmes himself, he has to be portrayed properly. And then, of course, John Watson, his friend, who is kind of like a stand-in for the reader. We are supposed to see things through Watson's eyes. And Watson is also a way for Conan Doyle to keep the mystery going throughout the story because Watson is not as clever as someone else might be, for example, who was working with Holmes, and he's never able to figure out what's going on, nor is the reader supposed to know what's going on until Sherlock Holmes has unlocked the secrets. Now, I've narrated some of the stories that I think are very good, like A Scandal in Bohemia, The Adventure of the Crooked Man. These are stories that uh, stand out in my view and and in the view of others. As for recording one of the adventure stories of Sherlock Holmes, first of all, I download a book from Project Gutenberg, such as The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes you see here. It's an EPUB, and then I open it up, and then I take a look at a particular adventure story that does a good job of highlighting some of the talents of Arthur Conan Doyle and especially some of the memes of the Sherlock Holmes stories on particularly nice display. And here we have one example, The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. This is a story that is uh, reminiscent somewhat of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens because it's the only story in the Sherlock Holmes canon that is set at Christmas time. And there is kind of an air of warmth and human kindness in this particular story. There's no horrible murder, for example. There is not even a crime. And so it has a kind of nice patina to it that really makes it unusual in the Sherlock Holmes stories. But on the other hand, all of the plot devices that we love so much, the Sherlock Holmes stories, are very much in evidence here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a couple of the places that represent these memes I'm talking about that people expect to see in a Sherlock Holmes story, and also some of the things I do to narrate this in such a way that 
you get a sense of the adventure of Sherlock Holmes, and you don't really find the reading of it to be getting in the way. That's the purpose of a good reading. You want people to get absorbed in the story. You don't want them to be aware of the narrator's voice all the time. Some of the time, that's okay. You can admire a particular narrator, and of course, if the narrator is bad, you can't help but notice that. But the idea of a good narration is that the narrator gets out of the way. And so in order to do that, the narrator has to have a steady voice, particularly when narrating the main part, the main character part, which in this case is John Watson. And he has to make the other characters distinguished so people know who's speaking at any given time. Other than that, uh, it just has to be within the bounds of reason how people are characterized, it seems to me. So it starts this way, and I'm using the voice of John Watson. I had called upon my friend Sherlock Holmes upon the second morning after Christmas with the intention of wishing him the compliments of the season. He was lounging upon the sofa in a purple dressing gown, a pipe rack within his reach upon the right, and a pile of crumpled morning papers, evidently newly studied, near at hand. Now the reason I pronounce Watson's voice that way is because I want to give Holmes a higher voice to distinguish the two. And this is particularly important when they're talking close together, and you have to be aware of where one man stops and the other man begins. Now here's some examples of the warmth of this particular story, uh, how it reflects the Christmas season. I seated myself in his armchair and warmed my hands before his crackling fire, for a sharp frost had set in and the windows were thick with the ice crystals. I suppose, I remarked, that homely as it looks, this thing has some deadly story linked on to it, that it is the clue which will guide you in the solution of some mystery and the punishment of some crime. No, no, no crime, said Sherlock Holmes, laughing. There you see that Holmes has a higher voice, but Watson has a lower, and that means that you can tell that he's narrating this in this particular location. Only one of those whimsical little incidents which will happen when you have four million human beings all jostling each other within the space of a few square miles. Amid the action and reaction of so dense a swarm of humanity, every possible combination of events may be expected to take place, and many a little problem will be presented which may be striking and bizarre without being criminal." We have already had experience of such. Now, a little later on, we get a sense of this meme that is often present in a Sherlock Holmes story, where Holmes makes deductions based on the most insignificant item. In this case, the item is a hat that has been left behind at the scene of some mystery. Again, there's really no crime in this story, but there is a mystery so they have a hat, and uh, that's all they've got. And so Holmes asks Watson uh, what he can deduce from the hat. And here's where Watson picks up. From his hat? 
Precisely. But you are joking. What can you gather from this old battered felt? Here is my lens. You know my methods. What can you gather yourself as to the individuality of the man who has worn this article? I took the tattered object in my hands and turned it over rather ruefully. It was a very ordinary black hat of the usual round shape, hard and much the worse for wear. The lining had been of red silk, but was a good deal discolored. There was no maker's name, but as Holmes had remarked, the initials H.B. were scrawled upon one side. It was pierced in the brim for a hat secura, but the elastic was missing. For the rest it was cracked, exceedingly dusty, and spotted in several places, although there seemed to have been some attempt to hide the discolored patches by smearing them with ink. I can see nothing, said I, handing it back to my friend. On the contrary, Watson, you can see everything. You fail, however, to reason from what you see. You are too timid in drawing your inferences. Then pray tell me what it is that you can infer from this hat. He picked it up and gazed at it in the peculiar introspective fashion which was characteristic of him. It is perhaps less suggestive than it might have been, he remarked. And yet there are a few inferences which are very distinct, and a few others which represent at least a strong balance of probability. That the man was highly intellectual is of course obvious upon the face of it, and also that he was fairly well-to-do within the last three years, although he has now fallen upon evil days. He had foresight, but has less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression, which, when taken with the decline of his fortunes, seems to indicate some evil influence, probably drink at work upon him. This may account also for the obvious fact that his wife has ceased to love him. My dear Holmes! He has, however, retained some degree of self-respect. He continued, disregarding my remonstrance. He is a man who leads a sedentary life, goes out little, is out of training entirely, is middle-aged, has grizzled hair which he has had cut within the last few days, and which he anoints with lime cream. These are the more patent facts which are to be deduced from his hat. Also, by the way, that it is extremely improbable that he has gas laid on in his house. You are certainly joking, Holmes. Not in the least. Is it possible that even now, when I give you these results, you are unable to see how they are attained? I have no doubt that I am very stupid, but I must confess that I am unable to follow you. For example, how did you deduce that this man was intellectual? And then it goes on from there. And of course, Holmes has deduced so many things here. It takes page after page for Holmes to explain how he reached these findings. And I think this is one of the stories that has the, the most inferences from the least source. And so that's kind of a, an interesting device. And the fact that it's in this Christmas sort of story kind of makes it whimsical and magical at the same time. But that's how I approach a story in the Sherlock Holmes canon, and these are some of the devices I use to try to bring it alive. Only the listener can judge whether I have succeeded.
I said a little while ago that there was no crime in this Christmas story. That is not exactly true. It turns out that a certain James Ryder actually stole the blue carbuncle and secreted it into the so-called crop of a goose. It turns out that Ryder was as bad as any other criminal could have been, and he was willing to see the poor individual named Horner get blamed for a crime he didn't commit, the stealing of the blue carbuncle. So when Holmes successfully questions Ryder and gets him to admit his crime, you would think that this is set up to end the story with another arrest. But instead, Christmas charity wins out, and Sherlock Holmes decides to let the man go, since he seems so sincerely sorry for what he did. After all, Watson, said Holmes, reaching up his hand for his clay pipe, I am not retained by the police to supply their deficiencies. If Horner were in danger, it would be another thing. But this fellow will not appear against him, and the case must collapse. I suppose that I am commuting a felony, but it is but it is just possible that I am saving a soul. This fellow will not go wrong again. He is too terribly frightened. Send him to jail now, and you make him a jailbird for life. Besides, it is the season of forgiveness. Chance has put in our way a most singular and whimsical problem, and its solution is its own reward. If you will have the goodness to touch the bell, doctor, we will begin another investigation, in which also a bird will be the chief feature. And so ends the adventure of the blue carbuncle. This was a story that Conan Doyle published in 1892, and the illustrations in the story were drawn by Sidney Paget, who was the most important illustrator of Sherlock Holmes stories. He was the first, but also the one we associate with Sherlock Holmes. Here are some examples of some of his artwork from a variety of the short stories. For more information on the stories of Sherlock Holmes, you cannot do better than the classic three-volume annotated series, The New Annotated Sherlock Holmes, edited by Leslie S. Klinger and published between 2004 and 2005. Every single story and novel of Conan Doyle is included and annotated in a brilliant way in this edition. I heartily recommend it. I hope that this episode has helped you understand how audio narration can bring alive the stories of Sherlock Holmes and provide pleasures for many listeners. Thanks for watching.